Welcome to the Michigan Constitution Podcast, where the citizens of the Mitten State seek the pleasant peninsula between their state and federal identities through a deeper understanding of how Michigan's Constitution and its defining case law affects their everyday lives. Your host, Tony Snyder, is a licensed Michigan attorney with more than a decade of experience in private and government practice. Through this podcast, you'll better understand the unique characteristics of Michigan's supreme law and probably learn a few fun facts about federalism, too. And now, Here's Tony. Welcome back to the Michigan Constitution. This time, we're going to finish off our conversation on Article 1, Section 5 of the Michigan Constitution. In this particular podcast, we're going to discuss defamation. Defamation is essentially false comments, which ultimately leads the listener or the reader to have a lower opinion of someone. It damages their reputation. Now, defamation is an umbrella term. You may know it and understand it better as slander or libel. Slander is spoken, libel is written. A number of the cases that we will be discussing in this final podcast deal with libel defamation lawsuits that are brought against newspapers. But newspapers are granted a privilege under Article 1, Section 5 as it relates to the stories that they print. The idea here being We want to let the media have a broad range of news stories so as to ensure transparency in both governmental and public matters. But before we get into those cases, your spoonful of legalese. This podcast is for entertainment purposes only. The purpose of this podcast is merely to teach you what's in the Michigan Constitution. Each podcast will review a different articles section, we'll talk about what it means, and we'll review Michigan case law, which helps us to better understand the effects of those constitutional provisions. Here's what this podcast is not. It is not legal advice. It is not legal expertise. Although I am a licensed attorney in the state of Michigan, I make no warranties as to the veracity of the statements I make within this podcast. First of all, I don't practice constitutional law. I practice administrative law. Second, The laws change on a day-to-day basis, as does case law. What might be applicable the day I make a statement about the Michigan Constitution could very well be outdated the day I post this podcast. If you think you're going to become a Michigan Constitutional Scholar because of my podcast, you're sadly mistaken. You'd do better with a Ouija board and a Magic 8-Ball. This podcast is for entertainment purposes only. If you need Michigan legal advice, you would be well served to contact the State Bar of Michigan and ask for their lawyer referral service program for a referral to an attorney who specializes in your legal matter. Because we so highly value the freedom of speech, the Michigan Constitution rarely, if ever, will restrain a newspaper from printing information. The theory here is that it's better for the newspaper to be sued for defamation, meaning that they told a story which was untrue and caused the subject of the article to be viewed as unseemly. That it's more important for that story to be told because it may be true, but then make the newspaper defend itself on allegations the story is untrue, as opposed to not letting that story be told at all. Because restraining the First Amendment rights of the media is a greater violation to the right to free speech than is a story which is wrong. The government prohibiting a story from being told by the media is considered prior restraint, which will almost never be tolerated. Because, again, if the newspaper runs a story which is wrong, they can always pay the plaintiff for their incorrect story. But the government preventing a story is considered to be a greater evil. 
Why? Because we don't want the government censoring the news and information we hear about, particularly if that censorship is due to the media writing stories about the government. So our first case from 1946. Again, I don't traditionally review cases that are prior to our 1963 Michigan Constitution. However, because the language of Article 1, Section 5 has been in the Michigan Constitution since its very beginning, and because so many cases relies on this 1946 story, I decided to put it in here. But the other thing, though, is I just love this particular story. It is really great. It has to do with and you'll find out about it here in just a minute, but the, the 30,000 feet overview is it has to do with a the behavior of this one particular judge. But overall, this was how, uh, just as the at the tail end of prohibition as it was coming to a close, how much the public disagreed with the prohibition. So let me get into it. Uh, this case is called Sanders versus Evening News Association from 1946. This uh, came before the Michigan Supreme Court. And here, our defendant, although owned by the Evening News Association, it was realistically the Detroit News newspaper that, that published this article. As a matter of fact, they wrote a series of articles relating to certain actions which were then in vogue around the Detroit courts related to granting the release of those arrested for misdemeanors, particularly alcohol sales. And, and again, I just I think this is so cool because near the end of prohibition, it's, you know, it's the early 1930s and the speakeasies uh, had a, a standing arrangement regarding arrests of individuals who frequented illegal gin joints. So <clears throat> granted, by the time we're actually dealing with this case, it's 1946. It had been going on for quite a while. And, and quite frankly, the article or articles had been written even post uh prohibition. So this was really more of a of a of articles that had been written about what this judge was doing and one of the things was this near the end of prohibition action. So you've got these illegal gin joints, right? After a particular raid at a gin joint, the operators of the illegal speakeasies would call certain attorneys and bail bondsmen and they would give them the names of the patrons who had gotten arrested at the raid. The lawyers and the bondsmen would then call a particular judge here. It's our plaintiff, Judge Sanders. And Judge Sanders would immediately call the Detroit police to request that the prisoners be released overnight. Then the prisoner would simply appear the next morning in court for an arrangement. And I just love it so much that by the end of prohibition, the, the cultural mass so despised the failed attempt of the government to prevent the manufacturing and purchasing of alcohol that a D Detroit judge was letting folks arrested for the consumption or purchase of alcohol just leave the jail, merely promising that they would come back the next morning. And obviously, they, they clearly must have been men of their words. But this wasn't the reason that Judge Sanders brought suit against the Detroit News. He sued because of a particular story they told, which goes as follows. This one particular time, Judge Sanders walked into a Detroit police department, banged his judge's gavel on a startled sergeant's desk and shouted, and I quote here, Courts in session, the Honorable Joseph Sanders presiding, bring in the defendant, end quote. And right there at the sergeant's desk, the judge proceeded to hold court. 
as you can imagine, uh, Judge Sanders did not appreciate the news article, uh, and therefore he brought suit alleging that the publications were meant to convey he was guilty of misfeasance, malfeasance, and corrupt practices as an officer, you know, as a judge or in the office of, of judge. Further, he alleged the articles thereby maliciously injured the judge, his good name, his reputation, and sought to bring him into a public scandal, disgrace, and to be seen by the public with scorn, mockery, ridicule, and contempt. The first thing that the Michigan Supreme Court did was to rule that the fact the judge did legitimately say what he said thus cannot constitute defamation. Remember, defamation requires the thing being alleged to be false. Well, if even Judge Sanders admits he did what the news article said he did, then it's not a false statement. But where the Michigan Supremes had to weigh in was in regards to how the statement portrays the judge. To test if something is defamatory, the article is to be considered as a whole, including the character of its headline when the article is published in a newspaper and the language that's used within this said article. So what do I mean? Well, let's start with the judge's argument that he was within the exercise of his official powers and duties in attempting to hold court in the manner in which he did at the Detroit police station. He believes the Detroit News was challenging his right to do so and, at least by inference, imputed to him wrongful motives, which was an attack uh, upon him as a public official and, in effect, charged him with malfeasance in office. Well, the Michigan Supreme Court said that's exactly what he was doing. They slapped down the judge by saying there was nothing in the law or even in the fact pattern of this situation which would grant him any authority to hold court in a public police department. The, the Supreme said when the plaintiff engaged in the exercise of judicial power, he was not acting officially, he was not acting judicially, and he was not acting in any capacity within his powers. <laughs> Ouch. Without belaboring the, the Michigan Supreme Court's point, they went into the idea that at the time the bar patron was arrested at the raid, no formal charges had yet been brought forward against the patron to this judge. So for the judge to go in and start acting in a judgely manner, my words, not the courts, well, there was not yet any official charge against the patron, meaning Judge Sanders couldn't have been acting in an official manner as he claims he was. He can only make decisions on cases brought before him. Essentially, the Michigan Supreme Court said the judge went to the case. The case was not brought to him. So he couldn't have possibly been acting properly as a judge when he committed this ad hoc court hearing in, in the police department. So, the Michigan Supreme Court concluded, because Judge Sanders acted without lawful authority, it was not libelous for defendants to publish their article. After all, the article merely highlighted a situation in which the judge acted in a manner in which judges can't behave. Specifically, holding court in a police station. And our Michigan Supreme Court said, yeah, judges, you can't do that. So the article merely highlighted an activity the judge was prohibited from doing in the first place. The court did not believe anything within the article in any way falsely impugned the judge's character. All 
Our next case regarding defamation is Nyon versus Slater from 1964. Again, this is another Michigan Supreme Court case. And in this instance, and I'm going to abbreviate the fact pattern because it was far longer in the court opinion that was written out than I thought was necessary to explain what had happened. So long story short, You've got a third party, and in this instance, it's defendant Slater. So even though she's a defendant in this case, she was a third party to what was going on that caused the overall defamation situation. So we've got this third party. It's defendant Slater. She wrote a letter to the Michigan Department of Health over what she believed was unprofessional behavior by a registered nurse employed at the Kalamazoo County Health Department. Now, just a little bit of trivia here. All counties have health departments. Most of those employees, however, are employed by the state of Michigan. The third party individual, Mrs. Slater, the defendant here, wrote this letter because of something the county nurse did in public. Allegedly, Nurse Nyon confronted a woman who, along with her husband, had adopted two young Korean children. The couple had been taking the children to a doctor to address the fact the children had worms. Although the letter doesn't make it clear, it sounds like the children were being treated by a doctor at the Kalamazoo Health Department. So, in a department store, defendant Slater tells it, the registered nurse, Nyon, confronted the mother and told the mother that there were medicines in Nurse Nyon's car, which the mother needed to treat the children so as to prevent the worms from being transmitted to the entire family. Apparently, she told the mother that worms were like typhoid. Naturally, this greatly embarrassed the mother and caused a small amount of what I assume was PTSD. It embarrassed the mother so much that her neighbor wrote a letter to the Michigan Department of Health to chastise the nurse for her public comments to the mother. Nurse Nyon brought a defamation lawsuit against Ms. Slater, this third-party neighbor, who wrote the letter, alleging the letter called into question Nyon's capacity and fitness as a nurse, that the allegation in the letter written by Ms. Slater was not true, and that saying those untruths to her employer damaged her reputation. The Michigan Supreme Court said, well, not so fast. There is such a thing as privilege when saying or writing things which may cause damage to reputation. A publication is privileged if the person making the comment reasonably believes in good faith there is an interest for society to know certain facts. In our case, the letter written by the defendant to the state health department in Lansing clearly falls within the scope of qualified privilege. Our state Supreme Court said that as a private citizen interested in the proper administration of the local county health department, Ms. Slater had the right to express her concern regarding the alleged improper conduct of an employee of the county health department to the office charged with supervisory powers over Nurse Nyon. Now, to be clear, the Supremes ruled that the presumption in cases of privileged communication is that the person acted in good faith and with proper motives. If there is anything in the alleged defamatory letter which shows a bad or a vindictive spirit or ill will, then it's a question for the jury to decide if the letter is defamatory or not. On the other hand, if the letter is drafted merely as an FYI nature, it shows no amount of spite or meanness, 
the letter is simply written to make the reader aware of a negative occurrence, then a judge gets to handle the matter and rule as a matter of law. The Michigan Supreme Court in this case points out there was nothing in the letter relating to any extrinsic circumstances which made the existence of actual malice being able to be inferred. To the contrary, they found, Ms. Slater's letter was not a general public distribution of criticism, but was specifically confined to the one letter sent to the state health department. For those reasons, the Michigan Supreme Court found in favor of Ms. Slater and her letter, they viewed the content as a matter of public interest. The court believed it is important for governmental employees to know what sort of actions their employees are taking. The court believed it is important for governmental employers to know what sort of actions their employees are taking, particularly when it relates to governmental work. So think of it like this. The information that Nurse Nyan said about, you know, private medical conditions, she said it in public. And we consider that to be bad behavior that we would want her employer to know about. Although HIPAA confidentiality was still a long way from being a thing, we as a society don't want nurses to discuss our medical problems in a target or a peer one like it was some sort of common everyday conversation piece. And so for those reasons, Ms. Slater was not found to have committed defamation against Nurse Nyon. Our next case is Linz versus Evening News Association. It was a Michigan Supreme Court case from 1983, and it deals again with the Detroit News newspaper and an article they ran against the Teamsters Union. In 1977, there was an article written in the Detroit News attacking the leadership of Teamsters Local 299. Just as a bit of worthless trivia for you, the Local 299 was Jimmy Hoffa's home local for the union. This is ground zero for Hoffa and the uh, <clears throat> associates with whom he worked. Now, to be clear, Hoffa was killed in 1975, so the actions taken by the local 299 were two years after his disappearance. But I really loved the Hoffa connection to this Michigan uh, Court of Appeals case and wanted to pass it along. But back to our case review. Plaintiff Linz was the president of that local 299, and he sued the Detroit News for defamation of character. So what was in the article that got him so riled up, you wonder? The author wrote of, quote, thieves who run the Teamsters Union, thugs who run local 299, stupid men who make stupid moves, cricket officials, animals, and were called union hoods, unquote. Okay, I, I guess I can kind of see then why he got so worked up. But to be fair, I've been called far worse as a lawyer, but I digress. The, court, the Michigan Court of Appeals does a nice job of laying out exactly what is required to prove a case of defamation. There are essentially three elements. One, is it a false statement which tends to lower the credibility of the person and the opinions of the reader? Two, is the statement of and concerning the plaintiffs? And three, and the statement is constitutionally protected in some way. The Michigan Court of Appeals began their reasoning by stating that the benefit of the doubt should be given to the media in defamation cases. 
They base this on the Michigan constitutional provisions under Article 1, Section 5's freedom of speech and of the press. They note the chilling effect on the exercise of our rights when these types of defamation cases are brought, particularly by these types of plaintiffs. See, the United States Supreme Court has created a bright line differentiation between what we might call public officials and, and public figures versus, say, you and me, the, the common person. In a world where individuals serve in a public capacity, they could be elected politicians, they're prominent business folk, uh, union folk, and there are the celebrities that we know. They are all individuals who seek public attention or receive public attention because of their position. The Supreme Court of the United States has given the media more leeway in these public official stories, which can be written without fear of a defamation claim. And that's what the Michigan Court of Appeals said here is that Mr. Linz, the president of the Teamsters Local 299, he's a public official because of the post he sought to obtain and subsequently holds. The court held that when reading the news article as a whole, particularly using terms such as crooked officials, thieves, and thugs, it was susceptible to an interpretation which would harm the reputation of Mr. Linz. So that first element goes in favor of Plaintiff Linz. Now, the, the Court of Appeals took a deep dive into the notion regarding this element of and concerning the plaintiff. The statements written in the newspaper had to be of and concerning the plaintiff, which essentially means you know who the actual people are within the article. This is opposed to making a general claim against a group of people. Now, plaintiff argued that the newspaper column was very much about him, Mr. Linz. But the Detroit News said, no, 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 no. The comments were made about the Teamsters Union and the local 299 generally. So said another way, the defendant argued a difference between him versus them. The newspaper said the article was about them, a general blank condemnation statement, not him, Mr. Linz. And that's a very smart legal tactic to take, because remember, to satisfy the of and concerning element, it has to make the reader think less of the person because of the defamatory statement was about and concerning that person in the article. But if you throw shade generically at a group of people, like, say, Local 299, you're not harming the individual's reputation. You're merely sullying the group's reputation. And remember, defamation is an individualized legal claim. You defame the person. You harm the reputation of the person. Only under extreme cases can you ever really harm a group's reputation. I liked the way the Court of Appeals said it best, and, and, and I paraphrase here, but effectively they said, where a defamatory statement hurts a wide group of people without any special personal injury, no individual of that group of people can sue for defamation. When defamatory statements are made against a general group of people, unless an individual is specifically maligned, an individual cannot bring a defamation lawsuit from a statement made about a faceless, nameless group. In Michigan, it is not enough for the individual to merely plead that he is a member of a group allegedly defamed. 
But here's the deal. In our case, the Michigan Court of Appeals said the statements made pertaining to the leadership of the local 299 were of and concerning Mr. Linz, our plaintiff here. The court believed the newspaper referenced Mr. Linz with enough specificity that even without using his literal actual name in the article, Mr. Linz was described so well that it was clearly about him an individual. Thus, points one and two are going in favor of plaintiff and his defamation lawsuit. The final element the Court of Appeals had to consider was whether there was any Michigan constitutional protections afforded to the Detroit News for writing the things that they wrote. Well, if the newspaper is going to win on this last element, the Court of Appeals had to determine whether or not Mr. Linz was a public official. Because if he was, the court is going to give the newspaper a far wider channel by which to traverse. On the other hand, if Mr. Linz was a private individual who happened to hold a leadership position in a private organization, then the statements made within the newspaper article will be scrutinized far more critically. Within the content of the newspaper column, the author wrote about the local 299's bylaws and the attempted changes to be made. A group of unhappy unionites wanted to amend the union's bylaws to require financial reports of union officials and to elect business agents, stewards, and committee members versus the current practice of just obtaining these positions simply by getting appointed to them. Because as you well can imagine, if, if it's by appointment, it's the buddies of those in charge that are going to get those positions. So they wanted to be able to elect these folks. The Court of Appeals said there existed a legitimate internal dispute amongst the Teamsters regarding the efforts of the dissident members to amend the bylaws of a large local union, and that this was an existing controversy of wide public concern. The Court of Appeals held that Mr. Linz thrust himself into the forefront of this controversy by engaging as the president of the local 299. Therefore, the Court of Appeals determined that Mr. Linz could be considered a limited public figure for purposes of this media coverage. It was because of his position as president of the Local 299, combined with the controversy of bylaw changes to an entity like the Local 299, which can impact both the members and the public based upon the changes that are made. So, now that we've established Mr. Linz is a public figure, at least limited to this lawsuit's subject matter, the Court of Appeals next had to determine whether or not the newspaper's statements contained any actual malice against Mr. Linz. Actual malice means the publication was made with the knowledge of its falsehood or with a reckless disregard to whether the statements were true or false. The burden of proof is upon the plaintiff to show by offering specific evidence, the statements were knowingly falsely made, or at least made with a total and reckless disregard for the truth. The Court of Appeals said that they did not believe there was any evidence to show the newspaper knew any of the statements were false, if there even were any falsities in the article. So plaintiff would have to then prove the author had a subjective awareness of any falsity of statements in that article. But again, the Court of Appeals ruled there was no evidence the author had any subjective awareness of statements being false. 
please remember, the crux of any defamation claim is whether the comments made were false. If it's not false, it's not defamation. But what about a reckless disregard of the truth in the article? This is almost a, a second bite at the apple. If a plaintiff can't prove falsehood, they can at least make an argument the comments were made with a reckless disregard for the truth. That's what Plaintiff Linz did here. He argued that the inadequacy, if not complete absence of any impartial investigation on part of the newspaper, coupled with what he perceived to be a lack of objectivity or fairness, all point to malice. But the Court of Appeals disagreed. They held that the character and content of the article is not relevant to malice, even where the publisher does not verify the contents of the publication. And let me say that one more time. The character and content of the article is not relevant to malice, even where the publisher does not verify the contents of the publication. As long as the media does not intentionally write lies, nor writes those lies with some degree of certainty it's inaccurate, the court will deem the writing as non-malicious against public officials. In our case, this court found the author at least checked old files, albeit in a perfunctory way. They noted failure to undertake private investigation does not constitute proof sufficient of reckless disregard for the truth. Failure to verify statements is not determinative of actual malice. Therefore, and in conclusion, the Court of Appeals held there was not clear and convincing evidence of actual malice by the newspaper when they ran the article. For that reason, Mr. Linz lost on the third element and therefore lost his entire defamation lawsuit. Our next case from 1991 is Locricio vs. Evening News Association. Once again, we've got a lawsuit against the Detroit News newspaper. But this time, we address defamation against a private individual. This is a 1991 case which made its way up to the Michigan Supreme Court. First, allow me to wax poetic for a few moments. The idea with defamation lawsuits is that we, as a society, hold great value in the belief that we must prevent or correct attacks against reputation caused by false and defamatory statements. But we must do this while still protecting the free flow of ideas and opinions on matters of public interests, as that is the heart of the United States First Amendment and Michigan's Article 1, Section 5. There has always been a struggle between protecting reputational interests while still providing breathing space to the principles of freedom of speech and freedom of press. How do we handle a situation like this where we have a private individual on one side of the courtroom and a newspaper defendant on the other side of the courtroom arguing their newspaper article was 100% a matter of public interest? Because that's what happened here. In 1979, the Detroit News wrote a four-article series about the two owner-developers of Pine Knob. Now, real quick for folks at home, yes, it's that Pine Knob. No, the Pine Knob you know today is neither owned nor is there really any remaining iteration of the Pine Knob of this 1979 timeline. 
Mr. Locricchio sued the Detroit News because he believed the entire tenor of the four-part series falsely implied he and his co-owner were members or associates of organized crime. And although he couldn't really point to any one specific statement within the series to be able to show any false statements were made. Without going too deep into the three-page, single-line, two-columns-per-page factual background of this case... I will tell you the quick and dirty. The newspaper article contained the following information. There were two unsolved murders with links to people who figured into Pine Knob's development. There was a so-called money laundering scheme designed to hide a source of a $200,000 loan to Pine Knob. There was a $4 million cost overrun by Mr. Locricchio in building a Las Vegas hotel theater. And there were several investors associated with organized crime who either lent or helped plaintiff Locricchio raise large sums of money. Okay, this is a big case, so we're going to have to break it down into bite-sized chunks. First, let's analyze Locricchio's defamation claim. We have two concepts to digest. Number one, the essential elements of defamation, meaning and falsity. And number two, the constitutional liability requirements, including public discourse, private plaintiffs, and the burden of falsity. So defamation, meaning, and falsity. Michigan has traditionally defined a defamatory communication as one which tends to harm the reputation of someone so as to lower their standing in the opinion of the community. This standard was something we discussed in the Nyon versus Slater case a little earlier. A cause of action for a defamation case contains four components. One, a false and defamatory statement concerning the plaintiff. Two, an unprivileged communication to a third party. Three, fault amounting to at least negligence on the part of the publisher. And four, actionability of the statement regardless of special harm caused by the publication. So to say it in a concise and succinct sentence... A cause of action for defamation requires a plaintiff to show both harm to their character as well as falsity, fault, and publication. But what about that constitutional liability requirement? In addition to satisfying the aforementioned four elements of defamation when it comes to a lawsuit involving a private figure in a public interest story, falsity becomes the primary focus for the court. Going back to our 1946 case of Judge Sanders, true speech on matters of public concern will always be a defense against defamation. But how should the court handle the situation where defamation by implication consists of ambiguous evidence with respect to falsity? Remember, per our abbreviated fact pattern, there were murders, money laundering, and organized crime financing referenced in the newspaper articles. The Michigan Supreme Court held that a private figure like Mr. Lucrecio bears the burden of proving falsity. Although, yes, he is a private person trying to create a private business, the subject matter upon which the Detroit News reported is clearly of public interest. Organized crime is frowned upon. As such, a news story about an entertainment venue such as Pine Knob, obtaining funding through organized crime is going to be information the public has a right to know about. The Supremes held that even if the newspaper articles, taken as a whole, 
conveyed a defamatory impression, Mr. Lucrecio still bears the burden of proving an underlying falsity. Sure, the Michigan Supreme Court held the articles may have been capable of a defamatory interpretation. The implications alleged against Mr. Lucrecio, however, do not arise from false facts or material omissions. Heck, they're not even proven by Mr. Lucrecio to be false. In conclusion, our state Supreme Court ruled that an action for defamation by implication must still conform to the three guiding constitutional principles as outlined throughout this case. First, speech of public matters provide heightened freedom of press protections as afforded by our Michigan Constitution. Second, that truthful statements regarding public affairs are never liable. And lastly, it is the burden of the plaintiff to prove falsity in statements that are made. If a plaintiff, like Mr. Lucrecio, is going to allege defamation by implication, he must demonstrate a statement or implication capable of having a defamatory meaning and prove falsity. Here, our court said, Mr. Lucrecio failed to carry his burden of proving falsity either of the statements in the article or the implications at issue. Okay, our last case on this matter, and this is not just the last case on defamation, but the last case on this whole Article 1, Section 5 we've been discussing. Again, shocker, is a Detroit newspaper article being sued for defamation. But this time, they had a handful of fellow defendants, including the Detroit Free Press, TV and radio stations WJBK, WDIV, WXYZ, and WKBD, as well as the city of Detroit and the city of Detroit's police department. Whew. Man, what on earth happened in this 1995 case of Northland Wheels Roller Skating Center versus Detroit News, you wonder? In 1989, the Detroit Free Press published an article about a fatal shooting that occurred two days earlier on Eight Mile Road in Detroit, a short distance from the plaintiff roller rink. According to the article, titled, quote, teen shot outside roller rink was caught in others' dispute, unquote. One teenager died and another was wounded in the leg as a result of the drive-by shooting that occurred, quote, outside a northwest Detroit roller skating rink, end quote, but was subsequently described as, quote, outside the nearby Woodland Arms Apartments, unquote. The article stated that police attributed the shooting to an argument that occurred inside plaintiff's roller rink that evening, although the victim actually never entered the roller rink. That same day, the Detroit News also reported the shooting in their own newspaper, highlighting three separate drive-by shootings that occurred in Detroit on that day. Thusly, several other radio and television stations also carried this news story. Plaintiff Roller Rink filed a defamation complaint alleging that the Free Press and Detroit News published stories that were not fair or accurate reports of the police department's news release, which said that the kids were walking from a nearby skating rink when the perpetrators rode by and fired shots striking the children. 
The plaintiff said that the newspaper articles contained false and defamatory statements, which cast the roller rink in a false light among patrons by portraying the roller rink as an unsafe place, thus resulting in substantial loss of business, profit, and goodwill. So, boiled down, the shooting did not happen in front of the roller rink. It happened at a nearby apartment complex. The disputed issue occurred somewhere at some time, but never at the roller rink as initially described in the newspaper. The roller rink is suing because they argue there was little to zero reason to even mention the roller rink in the story about a drive-by shooting. In the roller rink's opinion, and probably as the facts seem to appear, the roller rink was in no way part of what had caused the drive-by shooting to occur, nor was the roller rink the scene of the crime. This false light claim occurs when the newspaper publishes some information about the plaintiff, and that information portrays the plaintiff in a false or misleading light. Almost always, the information would be considered highly offensive or embarrassing to a reasonable person of ordinary sensibilities. The roller rink brought the defamation claim against everyone and their brother, but the trial court dismissed the case. The roller rink appeals now to the Michigan Court of Appeals, but they also ruled against the roller rink, and here's why. The Court of Appeals had to evaluate whether the information the newspapers published in their articles regarding the shooting and its connection to the roller rink was protected pursuant to a fair reporting privilege. The fair reporting privilege applies when the information obtained and published substantially represents the matter contained in a court record. The standard is met when the gist of the article or the sting contained within the article is substantially true. And listeners, just so you know, our Michigan Court of Appeals really did use the terms gist and sting in their court opinion. Under this test, minor differences are deemed immaterial if the literal truth would have produced the same effect. Maybe said another way, even though the newspaper got the gist of the story correct, the gist of the story wasn't so far off from what literally happened to make it an incorrect story. Here, in our case, the Michigan Court of Appeal believed the newspaper articles did indeed represent a fair and true report of the matters as contained in the Detroit Police Department's written records. And, the court goes on to state, the Detroit Police Department's records are generally available to the public pursuant to the Freedom of Information Act. Meaning, if you or I were to file a Freedom of Information request for the actual records the police wrote, which also are the same reports that the newspapers relied upon, we would find that the contents of the police reports and the contents of the newspaper articles were almost completely identical. Therefore, our court said, any minor changes in reporting between what the police report stated versus what was in the newspaper articles was so immaterial that the differences were factually and legally insignificant. Even more damaging to the roller rink's argument was when the Michigan Court of Appeals took time to specifically point out a recent update regarding this privilege for this type of lawsuit. They noted that the Michigan legislature included within the fair reporting privilege not only the publication of public and official proceedings, but also the broadcast of matters of public record and other generally available records. 
Therefore, the legislatively provided privilege encompasses newspaper articles based upon public reports of criminal incidents. But we're not done yet. What we've determined thus far is merely the fact it is legal for a newspaper to write a news story concerning records created by a police department. But the next aspect the Court of Appeals had to consider was whether or not the articles contained a fair and true report of what was in the police report itself. Remember from our fact pattern, the articles pulled into the story this roller rink, even though the roller rink really played no part in what caused the drive-by shooting of the two teenagers. Yes, the shooting occurred in the nearby vicinity of where the roller rink was located, but it was not in front of the roller rink as reported. Neither did the underlying dispute begin at or inside the roller rink as initially reported. But, as we already know, the Michigan Court of Appeals sided against the roller rink. They did not believe the roller rink established the material falsity necessary to satisfy the substantial truth of the allegation. The Court of Appeals said, and wait for it, neither the gist nor the sting of the content within the articles would have a different effect on the reader's mind than the literal truth was or than the, than the literal truth would have. So although the published articles stated that as a result of the argument that began inside the roller rink, which wasn't true, a teenager was slain in front of the skating rink, which, again, wasn't true, the court did not believe that a reader would be affected by the saddening news any different had the article specified that the victims were shot outside the apartment complex, which was true. The Michigan Court of Appeals did not believe the inaccuracies in the newspaper articles were material enough as the literal truth produces the same effect in the mind of the reader. The literal truth is that another teenager was senselessly murdered in a Detroit parking lot during a drive-by shooting. Exactly where, when, or why is irrelevant to the gist of the story, the Court of Appeals ruled. But what about, as the roller rink argues, that the articles imply his skating rink is unsafe? After all, they included in their story the sentences stating a shooting occurred outside the roller rink and neighbors mentioned problems occur when young people congregate in that area. That added commentary into the article wasn't a part of the police report that should be protected, the roller rink owner said. Unfortunately for the roller rink, the Court of Appeals said that type of statement is insufficient to establish his business was defamed. A business may successfully assert a cause of action for defamation if it operates for profit and the matter tends to prejudice it in the conduct of its business or to deter others from dealing with that business. Language which casts an aspersion upon a business's honesty, credibility, efficiency, or other business characteristic will be actionable. Where a defamatory statement contains an accusation against a business, its ability to do business, or the methods of its business, well, it will be considered defamation per se. But none of those accusations applied in this newspaper article, the Court of Appeals held. Nothing in the newspaper articles mentioned the business or its operation or its honesty, credibility, or other method of business. Neither did the articles imply that the management of the business participated in, encouraged, or negligently permitted the shooting to occur at its outdoor premises. 
All the article did was reference the site of the shooting in relation to the roller rink's location. And even if the newspaper got the location of the shooting wrong, that still does not defame the character and the reputation of the roller rink. Therefore, this court ruled, the roller rink failed to establish sufficient evidence to show the newspapers violated the substantial truth of publishing materially false information regarding the shooting. The articles represented two fair and true reports of the Detroit Police Department's records regarding the shooting. Therefore, their articles are going to be protected by both statute and by the Michigan Constitution's Article 1, Section 5 provisions. And there we go. That is the conclusion of our Article 1, Section 5 from the Michigan Constitution. The Michigan Constitution podcast is for entertainment purposes only and does not offer legal advice or create an attorney-client relationship. This podcast is hosted by Tony Snyder. For more information, visit TonySnyder.com, send an email to podcast at TonySnyder.com, or follow Tony on Twitter at Tony Snyder. Catch new episodes on the 1st and 15th of each month. Thanks for listening.